today, our speaker is uh, Dil Porter. Um, and for those of you who don't know Dil, uh, I know there are a few friends in the room. Um, Dil is Emer Emeritus Professor of Sports History and Culture at De Montfort University. And he's also the visiting professor in modern British history at Newman University, Birmingham. Um, he's written extensively on the history of sports. And um, today he's talking about a really interesting character, and that is the novelist B.S. Johnson. Um, but I'll let uh, Dill take it away okay. from there. So I'm just going to have to... That's all right. Get that guy. I'll, I'll do it from here. Yeah. Okay. okay. Shall I do it from here? Yeah. All right. Well, um, thank you for... Uh, turning up for this. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here as well. And uh, I'm going to talk about Brian Stanley Johnson. Um, fairly simple kind of presentation, I think. First of all, I'm going to introduce Brian Stanley Johnson to you. Uh, I have spoken about him once or twice before, the very first time, rather unsuccessfully, I think, at De Montfort. Amanda, who was he is here now, was here then. Um, I remember Martin Polly telling me it was the sweariest paper they'd ever had. I'm, I'm not going to actually flip that on you uh, this afternoon, this evening, but um, I'm going to introduce Johnson. He was a, he, Brian Johnson was um, born in 1933, died in 1973, sadly committed suicide um, in 1973 at 40 years of age. He had by then built a reputation um, as, and he sometimes accepted this um, description of himself and sometimes didn't, uh, he had um, he'd built a reputation as an experimental novelist, really. He was, he was, he saw himself very much, I think, in the tradition of people like James Joyce and Samuel Beckett and people like that. Um, but he was also, um, he was sort of very much at war with the English novel, the conventions of the English novel. Um, if I was a, a better literary critic than I am, I'd be able to tell you a bit more about that. But my understanding of it is that um, he was really rejecting the sort of linearity of the novel. He didn't like, he thought it was, it was they were too tidy, basically. They tidied up reality. They turned them into a kind of story that flowed on in a logical kind of way. And they didn't really reflect the kind of messy reality of life where things happened at random, unexpectedly, and so forth. And, you know, he was always struggling to find a form of the novel which, um, re well, which, re which reflected those kind of realities, really. So he was an experimental novelist in the sense he was an experiment, experimented with form. So one of his books, for example, is a book which has um, Albert Angelo, which has holes cut in the pages at various points so that you can read through, not necessarily in a linear fashion, because he would argue that life happened in a much more random way than that. You could read through to what was going to happen later. Um, he also had uh, his most famous novel, in a sense, which I wave at you here, a novel in a box, The Unfortunates, which we're going to talk about, which I'm going to talk about mainly for the next um, half hour or so. And um, this was a novel in a box, the chapters after the first one can be read in any order. So they come like this, um, and you have the, the joy of shuffling them around and reading them in any order you want. So I got quite interested in Johnson, partly from that point of view, but I, I got more interested in him really when I, when I read um, Jonathan Coe's biography of Johnson published in 2004. It's called like, like a Fiery Elephant, which is a title that came about. It was, it was a description of a, that a child gave of Johnson as a supply teacher, uh, descending on them in some class in West London or somewhere. And um, as I read through that, I mean, it's a very compelling read, really. It's, very, it's, it's a very uh, detailed biography. It's a kind of literary biography as well as a, if you like, a personal biography. It, it entwines the two, the two things. But um, what you're getting there is, um, well, what, what really, as it, as it reached the end, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I think 
it's quite clear that Johnson has, has committed suicide. That's a known fact. But as we reach the end of that uh, co-biography, there's this final chapter, which is very, very compelling, called um, Disintegration, which is a very appropriate title, because Johnson is sort of, on a sort of personal level, disintegrating throughout 1973. For a start, you know, his, um, he feels very under underappreciated, you know, whereas at one time, as I say, he, he was sort of self, he had some pretensions to be, so the heir to someone like Joyce. Um, he seemed to move from being a novel, novelist that was regarded as promising and interesting into a novelist that was regarded as um, really difficult. Um, certainly publishers found him difficult because he made very specific and unusual demands on them, but also kind of difficult in the personal sense. I get the sense that he could kind of um, start a fight in an empty room on the subject of the English novel, really. Because he was he was he was sort of at war, as I said, with the with the conventional form. Um, in other respects, you know, his life was you know so he had that disappointment. That meant that money was drying up, so he had financial problems. He had marital problems by that stage. His wife temporarily left him, and that you know created a crisis in his in his life. Um, and um, he, some mysterious figure. Code points out may or may not have turned up at the last moment. Some mysterious Svengali-like figure from his past who had some kind of emotional and uh, some kind of emotional grip over him. Um, all these things are going on, and you get this sense of him rushing towards this inevitable fight, uh, date with death, really, in 1973. And as the final days approach, I mean, we're within two two days or so of him committing suicide. On Friday the 9th of November, um, as you're reaching towards the end of this chapter, um, I was intrigued by this line really, and this was this is really my starting point for all this. He said, um, Coe says, um, you know, all these things are happening, his life's in crisis, et cetera, et cetera. Friday the 9th of November, the next day was a Saturday. So obviously Johnson went to see Chelsea play at home. And I thought, well, that's a very interesting thing to do a couple of days before you, you commit suicide. And, that, you know, I know we all get disappointed at times with our team's performance, but it does seem it does seem a very strange choice in a sense of something to do when you're in that kind of state. But it also speaks something about Johnson's, Johnson's understanding, if you like, of this kind of elemental passions that football can actually um, generate in people. And it made me think about um, Johnson as a kind of football man, if you like, to use the kind of Arthur Hopcroft phrase. Hopcroft does have a chapter about football fans. None of them are, I'm aware of actually committed suicide. But it made me think a little bit about what football would have meant to Johnson. And I started to read through Johnson's essays and through the reviews that he wrote and other pieces of writing. Um, looking in a sense for, well, just keeping an eye open for really references to football and things of that kind. And then I found he was an enthusiastic but not terribly good player as a, as a teenager. It was very important to him. He said playing football was more important than anything else in his life, certain time in the teens. And then he had this kind of long relationship with Chelsea. Um, it was something that allowed him to bond with his father. His father, a rather sort of meek and mild character, who worked for a, a storeman for a religious bookshop, um, and said hardly would the kind of guy that would hardly say boo to a goose, but used to f and blind on the terraces at Stamford Bridge on a Saturday afternoon, according to Johnson. And it was where they bonded. It was a very important site. For I mean, we often come across that story of fathers and sons going to matches and handing on the tradition of supporting a particular team. And that sort of comes through very much in, um, in, in, uh, in various things that Johnson wrote. So I thought, well, there's maybe something to be said. You know, I started to look at him really, first of all, as a football man. And then I realized, as I, mean, I knew this already, but it, it then struck me that probably the most interesting thing about his relationship with football, I mean, this is a man who, who put down in his who's who entry under recreation, just one thing, Chelsea Football Club. Um, 
it struck me probably the most interesting and new thing, if you like, that he he might have some bearing on as far as sports history is concerned, particularly, was in relation to um, his brief career, if one can call it that, his sideline, really, as a match reporter. Because in 1963, he was... Um, recruited by Clifford Makins, the sports editor of The Observer, to um, write match reports on football uh, for, their, um, yeah, for, for their edition on, on Sunday morning. And he stayed with them for a couple of years and then as we'll see, you know, that relationship sort of fell apart as, as Johnson's relationships tended to do at the time, one way and another. Um, and it made me, and I, I became particularly interested at that point in, sorry, let's go back one, in the unfortunates in this novel, because part of the novel, the novel is a, like Johnson basically thought that the only way you could be true in a sense was being true to yourself. And so he is really at the center of everything that he wrote. Um, and the unfortunates, this book in a box um, has three as a result, three sort of intertwined internal monologues. Um, it's set on uh, a day in the end of 1964, just after Christmas 1964, when the Observer sent him to Nottingham to report on Notts Forest versus Spurs. And so part of the first internal monologue, and the one that mainly concerns us here, principally concerns us here, is Johnson writing about his experience about writing about that match. Uh, there are two other sort of interior monologues. One is about, um, and he's, he's, uh, it's about a relationship with a failed romance, if you like, that he, he associates with Nottingham. He's revisiting Wendy, his relationship with Wendy and everything went wrong with it. So that's kind of in there. And the third of the interior monologues is actually concerned, the most important one in the book really, is probably concerned with his memories of uh, a friend of his who, with who, who shared many of his ideas, who had died, who was from Nottingham and had died of cancer. Um, he's recalling that sort of series of events and reflecting <coughs> on that as well. So the unfortunate has these sort of intertwined internal monologues, really. Uh, but the one that particularly concerns us here is this one about the match itself going to Nottingham to report the match for the Observer, and what it's actually like, what the experience of writing a match report um, in, under the conditions then prevailing in 1953. Yes, sorry, 64. Okay, and it made me think about a kind of problem. I mean, I sometimes get, have got, when I was marking essays and dissertations, a bit irritated with, it's obviously, it's a great thing, digitization, and it's great that we can look up all these press sources so easily now, but students tend to sort of use them a bit randomly without thinking. They think, well, I, I, I get the impression sometimes they think, well, these are things to be kind of plundered really um, for information, for sort of facts, if you like, whatever they are, um, provided uh, rather than to be kind of understood. And so, you know, I was reading the very, that, that very good book by Steve Tate that came out a couple of years ago about the history of sports journalists in Britain. It goes up to 1939. It's a very interesting, kind of rich pudding of a book, I think. And in there, you know, he, he points out at some point in the introduction, I think it's difficult to think of any other historical sources that have uh, prompted as little research in terms of the motives, aspirations, practicalities, and identities of those who write them as sports reports, particularly match reports, um, I guess, um, which formed a, you know, such a huge part of that. So it made me think that actually, well, we don't very often get an account, an attempt on an account, what it's like to actually write a match report. And here's a way, perhaps Johnson's pointing away through the unfortunates, in which we can actually get to grips with this kind of source. Okay, so like a fiery elephant was very important. It led me to the unfortunates. It led me to Johnson's demise. So the next day was Saturday. So obviously Johnson went to see Chelsea playing at home. And that was the match he went to see, Chelsea versus Everton. The interesting description of it in the book provided by the person he was at the match with, who wrote, who wrote a kind of fictionalised account of it. Unpublished, I think, but which 
Jonathan Coe track down, where he describes Johnson's reaction to Peter Osgood scoring his 101st goal for Chelsea and you know, capering around um, on the terraces at Sanford Bridge um, you know, in a kind of frenzy of joy. Um, and then it leads us to this match. And this is what he's thinking, of course. I'll just put that quote in from The Unfortunates. I hope I can bloody pull this thing together. It would help if there were anything worth writing about, even if it's a bad match, they tell you disguise it. Writers out were a good match. Bollocks to that. So, sorry, you know, there was bound to be one swear word in somewhere. Uh, and, there, and there it is. So, this is the match. This is the occasion which prompts um, the writing of the unfortunates, really. Not as far as versus Spurs at the city ground, Nottingham, 26th of December, 1964. Right. And it's useful for a historian. I mean, be, because if we just think about this, if we just think about the primary sources that this match generates, we can actually put three things together here. It's sort of triangulation, which I know is kind of a... People usually talk about that in terms of verifying facts, really. I mean, it's kind of, but you can, it is an interesting thing to be able to do because what we've got here, well, we've got three things that we can look at. We've got, first of all, we've got, as you can see, headed the Spurs first away win, which is Johnson's own account of the match as it's published in the Observer the next day. Spurs first away win, they win 2-1. Um, and um, the second thing we can, what we can triangulate that with, if you like, or begin to try and go into it, is actually um, the uh, notes, if you like, or the draft, the rough draft, which Johnson put together during the course of the match, because they're in his papers, there's a big file of all these match reports as drafted in the British Library, in the, in Johnson, the papers that were left there by uh, B.S. Johnson's family. So you can actually look and you can look at the page with crossings out, gaps left. You can get some notion of how he's drafting this report, uh, putting it together during the course of 90 minutes or so on a Saturday afternoon when he's feeling rather cold and miserable in Nottingham in December 64. And the third thing we've got is an account in the unfortunates of what it's like to write the report. Now, it's a fictional. It, it, he's writing in there. He fictionalises the occasion in a sense. He writes about uh, a match between City and United. The actual report of that, there's a kind of fictionalized report as it would have been published in the paper that comes in at the very back of the, of the box. But in the, one of the chapters, one of the bound chapters in it is actually um, a report of what it's like to actually put that together under those conditions. So, you know, that, that's what we're looking at here with Johnson. We've got three things at least. In fact, you could say there were four because at the very end of this chapter, he actually, there is another stage that intervenes, I suppose, um, where he's actually uh, written the match report and he's dictating it over the phone, as he would have done in 64 to a copywriter back at the Observer. So we've got really one, two, three, four versions, I suppose, of this report. We've got the report in draft, as he's doing it, um, as fictionalised in The Unfortunates. We've, we've got the report in draft in actuality, as it were, in his papers in the British Library. We've got the report as it appears after it's been sub-edited in The Observer. And we've got the, the, the we've got a sense of, the, of how he would have dictated that over the phone to a copy editor. So it's quite rich in a sense. It generates a rich kind of body of material. Um, he was always complaining about the sub-editing process. Um, yeah. I mean, a guy that um, a, a guy that managed to persuade a publisher to publish a book with holes in it found it quite difficult to adapt to the idea of whole paragraphs disappearing between Saturday night and Sunday morning, as it were. So he was always complaining that his, you know, he wanted he liked to have complete control of his. Um, of his prose, his output, and so he found that very difficult. I don't. I think he wrote it's rather exaggerated. I mean, it, it was in a sense the cause of him leaving uh, the Observer in '96 or parting company. I don't think they were too sorry to actually let him go in the end in 1965 when he when when he actually finished his, his relationship with them. But it's um, 
in fact, I, my feeling is just having looked at a lot of these things, that they don't intervene as much as I, certainly as, as having read um, The Unfortunate and Jonathan Coe led me to expect. And the, the, this report is, is, is a good case in point, really. He's always wondering here what they're going to do with it in the fictionalised account of, of being at Nottingham for this match. What are the subs going to do to, this, to his copy? But in fact, his, the, the report has actually uh, published doesn't really contain too much in the way of amendments. And it's, it's also interesting, I think, because it's a, it's a report with, that, that, when I looked at it, doesn't sort of have too many of Johnson's sort of verbal fireworks in it, in the sort of thing you might expect. I mean, the Observer, I think, appointed him in, 60, in 63, gave him this part-time job, if you like, because um, of his reputation as a novelist. I mean, what's happening in 63 in Fleet Street on Sundays anyway is that, you know, this is the, the era of um, cheap newsprint, uh, post-war, end of those restrictions. The big heavy, heavyweight newspapers on Sunday morning, the Times, Sunday Times and the Observer going head to head and appealing to a kind of upwardly mobile middle class sort of audience. I mean, it's an interesting time in the development of sports writing anyway, uh, particularly football writing. I mean, Brian Glanville's written about this quite well, he's written about this once, once or twice, about this kind of, uh, he talks about British, uh, British sports writing generally struggling to find an idiom, as he calls it, in, 19, in the 1960s. And he says, you know, what, what you've got on the one hand is what he calls the patrician indulgence of the heavies of the, the, the serious papers, if you like. Um, and on the other hand, you've got what he calls the sort of um, stylized stridency of the uh, popular newspapers, tabloids and whatever. And there's not much in between. Um, he's always saying, you know, you want to, he, what you're really looking for is, is um, some sports writing that can be read by intellect, I think he says by intellectuals with, without embarrassment and by, and by working men without labor. And um, I think the idea of employing Johnson was in a sense, he, he, he possibility it might bridge that kind of gap in some way. I mean, he was, you know, his working class, West London, basically Chelsea supporter, understood, understood what football meant to people on one level, but also, you know, could be expected to say something serious and original um, as well. So that's how he ends up at Nottingham um, on this occasion um, in 1964. And um, let's just have a look. Well, there's an, I don't know what you, you can read here, but I'll give you, Let's turn to the unfortunates. Um, actually, before we... No, I won't turn to the unfortunates now. I'll turn to the unfortunates in a moment. Let's just talk a little bit about the business of being a match reporter. We can leave that up there, give you a chance to, to um, read it if you can. It doesn't really matter if you can't, if you can't, because I can read a relevant section to, or two to you. But let's just think about Johnson's position as a match reporter on this sort of taking up this kind of sideline in 1963. Well, first, the first thing to say, I think, and, then, and this, you know, he, as he was in the world of, of the novel, in a sense, he was an outsider, very much an outsider. And he's not, I'm not suggesting here that in any way he's typical of anything. He's not, he certainly isn't typical of a sport. Uh, I'm not saying he's a typical football reporter in, 19, in the mid 1960s. I mean, he's, but he's not, if you think about other football journalists, other people be doing this kind of job. He's not, um, he's not somebody who's made his name as a footballer, he's quite famous and can bring some kind of professional insight, if you like, into, into uh, match reporting. And he's not, um, he's, he's not like, even, even if we think of other heavyweight reporters, if you like, match reporters at the time, yeah, people like Brian Glanville, Arthur Hotcraft, yeah, he's not like them either. I mean, they've actually, in, in the journalistic sense, got their knees brown, as they would have said in the old days of the empire. Um, they've actually, I mean, Glanville obviously is a little bit different. He's, he's, his Italian connections make him, a, you know, give him something, a different angle on things. He's, he, can, he can talk about European football with authority and so forth. But he's also reported some, uh, football on Sundays for the Empire News in the 1950, mainly concentrating on divisions three south, and, you know, used to this kind of 
the the kind of um, the struggle to get to the phone first um, on some. You know, he always talks about big sort of scramble up, up the slope at the end of a match at South End, you know, to be the first reporter to get to the phone and file their copy. So he's done that. If you look at, look at Arthur Hopcroft, I mean, he's another one who's come up through that sort of journalistic, local journalism route. He's reported on Stafford Rangers, the local newspaper in the, in the, in the 1950s. He's, he's done his apprenticeship, if you like. These are different kind of people. Johnson wasn't like that. He didn't have that kind of journalistic apprenticeship. If you look at, you know, Ian Waldridge or something, I know he's not really a football writer, but, you know, he, he makes a big point in, in his writing very often of saying, well, look, I began on the new Milton advertiser. I did weddings and funerals and, you know, whatever. I know what it's like to be a journal. I've got some journalistic nous out because of that. And that's that. So he's not like them. Um, he's also very consciously, I mean, he's consciously observer recruiting him to do something a bit different. Um, bridging that gap, as I say, um, in that, you know, he's determined to avoid what he calls, uh, well, a, a cliche. Um, and that's quite a different thing to avoid, I imagine. I mean, I can't speak for any personal experience here, but it's probably difficult to, it is difficult to avoid cliches when you're writing under pressure, I do know that, um, whether you're writing about football or anything else. And they are already writing under enormous pressure on the Saturday afternoon. So cliche is quite handy, really. They can, it's quite useful to useful things to have around on occasions. Um, but he's so he's he, he's got that in his mind. You do sense that when you're reading through his match reports and his drafts of match reports. But you also see him being somebody who's quite determined to sort of do this, you know, to prove himself in a sense. You get a sense from that he's a bit isolated from the the other reporters at the match, for example, but you get a sense he's, he's very determined to be taken seriously, to, to show that he can respond to the kind of particular disciplines of match reporting. Um, I mean, he's, you do get a sense of him growing into the job, actually, as you look through the draft reports in order, as it were, um, and the published reports over the period 63 to 65 at the Observer. His, the first one, I think he might have gone to one or two matches as it were to shadow somebody, but the first one he did seems to have done on his own was a FA Cup tie between Catherine Town and Millwall in November 63, um, when he, you know, he files his 300 words on time, but managed to get both scorers wrong in a one-all draw, which is, you know, shows you've got something to learn, I suppose. Um, but, you know, there are various early gaps. I mean, there's an interesting one, actually, in the Knott's Forest report, which is a year or so later. I mean, there's a, just a line or two as you read through that, which is pretty, as I say, a pretty um, straightforward sort of report of the events of this, of this match, where somebody has, somebody's, somebody's about, about to shoot, but has the ball nipped off, off their toe by a defender, but still managed to, to actually hit the ball over the bar, which seems a bit... Bit sort of unlikely, but I mean, under pressure, these things can happen. You can, you know, could be aware of that, I suppose, as we're reading these things. Um, but you do sense him starting to learn how to put these things together. There's a match report from Liverpool, for example, where he um, he clearly has worked out that you know, if you've got to write 500 words by or 400 words by 5:15 or something, that it helps to write quite a few of them before the match has started, and so he. Um, he, he, he mentions that he's read the local paper and the local, well, there's an extract from the local paper, I think, in his, in the actual file in the British Library, saying what the average home gate for Liverpool is that season. And lo and behold, it appears in, you know, the first or second paragraph of the report. So he's kind of learning trade as he goes along. And certainly you do find some interesting um, reports coming in. He has, I think it's at his most successful, um, when he can provide, as he quite often does, he's striving in his writing to find a way, as he put it once, of accommodating the mess. You know, 90 minutes of football is a lot of random events, really. You can't anticipate what's going to happen, but it's, they've got a sort of frame around them and a time frame as well. And um, I think the most successful reports that he writes are those where, in fact, he does actually provide a kind of narrative, which is kind of he perhaps wants to do by, by framing it as a, as a story, giving the story a kind of theme in the opening paragraph. The most successful one, I think, is one he wrote 
for a match between Arsenal and Sunderland, I think it was in about 64. And he's writing and it, he, he's writing about um, a goal by George Easton. And he said uh, it, it opens up um, like this. Um, the two sides are evenly matched in every position except one. But that one position was inside left, and the man playing there was George Easton. And then he abandons the orthodox chronology. And his second paragraph goes on to describe the goal which Easton scored near the end that secures victory for Arsenal. With seconds left, he scored one of the finest solo goals imaginable. He beat four men in a 40-yard solo run, held off the last two last-second challenges, then chipped a perfect shot into the corner against the direction of his run. Okay, He then weaves Easton's magic, if you like, into almost every paragraph. So the report coheres into a, you know, from a, a sort of reader's point of view, quite a satisfying whole, before concluding with the second reference to Easton's final 20 seconds of genius. Um, and that, that kind of technique works quite well. He does it again, there's another report, I think it's Fulham and Arsenal, where he describes it as a kind of musical act. You know, it's um, with lots of kind of, you know, it's, it's obviously not a very good match. Um, and he, he sort of makes quite a bit of fun at Fulham's expense. Um, says, you know, uh, uh, um, Arsenal's straight man confronts Fulham's knockabout comic. And he sort of, he kind of extends that right the way through the match report. And those kind of, you can see there, he's kind of learned fairly successfully to provide the observer with what they probably would thought they were employing him for in the first place. So you get quite a lot of that kind of thing. He does, I mean, he does have some problems with sub-editors. Occasionally, you can see he had reason to be um, a little bit um, angry, if you like, or disappointed, uh, where they mangle something he's obviously you know, some polished paragraph or two that he that he finds gets run together in an unsatisfactory way or or generally messed about with. And that, I guess that would have made him annoyed. But sometimes you can see the subs had a point. Um, the very last match report you might see observer is, is a match between Brentford and Yeovil in 1965. And um, he describes the Yeovil goal going through a route of Brentford players. Um, and they... The sub didn't like that, so it's obviously thought it was a bit vague, and so they just put a number of Brentford players, which annoyed him enormously. Um, I don't think Ralph's very good myself, um, doesn't really describe anything very much, but it does actually describe a feeling somehow. It, you get some sense of what he's thinking about it, whereas a number just seems a pretty kind of you know, um, neutral sort of word to use in that case. But that was, you know, that was the final straw, really, as far as he and the Observer were concerned, that change that the subs made. He was very unhappy about that, and that seems to be the, the you know, the, the, the intervention that prompted him to leave. So, okay, let's turn from that to this. You've had a chance to look at it now, I hope. Um, this extract from The Unfortunates. Um, and again, if you, if you had a chance to look at it closely, you can see that um, it's quite interesting, this... Um, kind of stream of consciousness almost that's going on here uh, in the way of writing. But you're getting, um, again, you know, the, as he puts his, you're getting a sense of somebody actually putting a report together. Again, Phipps was at fault when he was caught too far out by a long tentative, thoughtful cross from a United defender, Thompson, but there's a gap then to his obvious release, the ball landed, another gap in the top netting just behind the bar, that's clumsy. So he's kind of, He's reminding himself to change things if he's not satisfied as he's drafting them. And he's stretching all the time for kind of new ways of saying things. I mean, a long, tentative, thoughtful cross. I don't know, how can a cross be thought? Well, I suppose it can be thoughtful. I don't know, the intention is thoughtful, but the cross can't be thoughtful. Um, tentative and thoughtful? I don't know. Does it work? But you can see what he's, you can see the kind of pressures he's under in fact, when he's doing that. Um, and then he's, yeah, there's another one on the following page. It was obviously not Phipps's day. They'll get the apostrophe wrong, or do I underestimate them? <laughs> and yet in one way it was his lucky day. In one way it was his lucky day. Holman, hunting, yes. Yeah. <laughs> hunting, yes. Um, 
for for a way through. That's the sort of horrible pun they hate, and I enjoy try, trying to get through them. So he found a gap in City's defence. Said Williams racing, no, sent, and then you know he's changes that to something else to give Lomax an easy chance of three yards with City's goalkeeper out of position. Incredibly, no, all too credibly, Lomax stopped the stopped the ball, blank in his haste, and it cleared the city bar on a good three feet. So it's all very kind of, the whole thing is kind of tentative and draft, and it's a draft, but you're getting a sense of that process, writing and rewriting as the, under pressure as the match goes on. And you also get a sense of the sort of conditions that they were writing under. Press box, dirt blows across my pages, the smuts, the cramped seats, the ledge square, not the most comfortable angle for writing. This is, I suppose, the club's way of disregarding reporters and getting its own back on us for what we write. How childish of them. So you, you get that kind of that kind of sense, that sort of immediacy um, of what it's actually like to be sitting, you know, probably quite cold on a December afternoon in Nottingham at the city ground in 1964, trying to compose something that would satis satisfy um, the observer and its readers the next day. So, I mean, it's quite interesting. And there's a, there's a there's a great book about Brian Clough called um, "Provided You Don't Kiss Me," I think it's called, by um, Duncan Hamilton, talking about his relationship with, with Clough. When, and Hamilton was working, I think, in the Nottingham Evening Post at the time, and had a long experience of working at the City Ground as a match reporter. And um, he says, um, uh, and this goes back to another point really about typicality and whether he's typical. And since he, he always says B.S. Johnson was lucky, was his response to reading The Unfortunates. He was a part-timer. <laughs> he didn't have to do this all the time. And what he didn't have, um, and he, you know, there was, and he talks, Hamilton talks about the struggle to avoid cliche in a way, trying to avoid the words manufactured in a mechanical, depressing way, as if by a bleary-eyed factory worker, turning out rivets. And you very much get the sense that Johnson's trying to do that sort of thing. He's very much, he feels he's got license. He's, he's not in, absolutely employed not to do that. Uh, and he's struggling therefore to find the right words on occasions. And that, you know, that's, that's a, a real pressure as is the time factor, because time is so important here. Part of the discipline of writing these reports is that he puts, you know, he puts the heading on the, on the uh, drafts, you know, five, 400 words by, 515, you know, 300 words by, um, yeah, as soon as possible, you know, et cetera, et cetera. He's always, you're very conscious of the discipline of time in that sense. Okay, so this struggle to find the right words, and there's a sort of sense of, you know, a report in the making again at the end of this chapter, where, you know, he actually talks, he's talking down the line to the, cop, the cop, um, copywriter at the Observer. Um, in the other goal, Phillips, apostrophe, Phipps, luck, Phipps, apostrophe, Phipps, luck, continued, full point. Holman blasted a free kick over, comma, Alexander hit the interception, comma, and anything more accurate seemed bound, blank, to hit some part of the city goalkeeper's apostrophe body at full point. So you're getting the whole kind of sense of a report being put together. Okay, well, just to sort of bring these... I mean, I rambled as, almost as much as B.S. Johnson might have done at the time. There's the report. Okay, let's start, start with, finish with this, really. Um, and, I, and I've sort of drafted this a bit more kind of formally. But it strikes me that, I mean, Johnson's, what Johnson's after in his, in his writing generally is authenticity in the sense that, you know, he wants to, he has some notion of the truth. And the truth is messy and untidy. And the only real access to the truth that any author has, he would say, is really is really himself. And he's all, all everything he writes really is about himself. Now, in a sense, that's quite useful because it does mean we it helps us to kind of understand the unfortunates of his account of writing a match report as something authentic. Um, yeah, he's writing a fictionalized report, but you get a sense that it's born out of his own experience very much and uh, this is something that certainly we can bear in mind as historians when we think about these reports as primary sources where actually we, have, we get a sense of you know that, that quotation or that, that problem that I pointed to that um, 
Steve Tate was talking about early on, how we, you know, we we don't really know very much about how these how these reports were composed. We don't really know very much about who composed them. We don't know very much about what motivated them, what they were trying to do, what they thought they were trying to do. But Johnson gives us some sort of access to that, I think, um, through the unfortunates. And so I think in that sense, it needs to be taken quite seriously. And really, I'd like to finish, I suppose, by just talking about um, a rather neglected piece of writing by Johnson, really, which was a review he wrote for The Observer in 1964, I think it was, of the FA Book for Boys, which was an annual publication, came out between the late 40s and the, wound up around about 1973 or so. Um, rather a sort of... Um, paternalistic approach, really. I mean, and the FA was, I think it was prompted initially, the early editions, you can see this, the time where the FA is trying to stop, trying to kind of um, engage the attention of middle-class boys whose schools were switching to rugby um, and move away, if you like, from the Pools and Woodbine image of, um, of association football that sometimes was um, lumbered with in, in, uh, middle, in the minds of some middle-class critics in the, from the 1930s onwards. And what he's doing is, he says, um, he's looked at, these, at the um, FA book for boys in 1964, and he says, well, it's, you know, it's, it's all right, but it's not football, it's, it's, not what we, it's not what we want to know. It doesn't tell us anything we want to know. And it's particularly, I mean, I've got a picture here of Jimmy Grease scoring against, I think, Blackpool. Uh, I haven't got a picture here of the actual match that he's writing about, which is, he says, look, um, FA Book for Boys, um, 1964, the only truthfulness that he could reliably access was to be found in his own experience. And he quickly made it clear that the sanitised version of the game presented in the FA book for boys was not one that he or any boy of his acquaintance would recognise. This just isn't the sort of soccer we know, the sort they put in this book, he insisted. It seems a different sort altogether, too clean and pretty, and somehow beside the point. And he went on to refer to the book's unsatisfying coverage of the FA centenary match, which had been celebrated at Wembley in 1963, where England played a game against um, FIFA 11, representing the rest of the world. So it's a big match, England won 2-1 as far as I remember, and the winning goal, I think, was scored by Greece. It doesn't tell you, he says, and I think this is critical to understanding Johnson, it doesn't tell you about the only really interesting thing that happened in the England and rest of the world match. I want to know what Jimmy Greece felt like when he scored that goal, or at least what someone felt like who was watching him do it. So it's about authenticity. My feeling is this encapsulates the frustration that Johnson came to feel as a match reporter. His insistence on using a route of Brentford players when describing Yeovil's late goal speaks to the senses. It seeks to convey the reporter's experience of the event in a way the sub-editor's insertion a number of Brentford players doesn't. Well, Johnson and the Observer Party Company, soon after this report was published, as I said before, had a row with the Observer, he explained. They sold my copy so badly for the umpteenth time that I had to say I'd not write anything. I'd not write except under a pseudonym. And they wouldn't wear that. Well, why would they? Because they'd employed him to actually write as B.S. Johnson. The B.S. Johnson byline was useful to the Observer as it sought to widen its appeal to newly affluent, upwardly mobile readers with an interest in a game which had previously been underrepresented in the quality Sunday press. But Johnson could be difficult and his departure may have been greeted, not least by the despised subs with a sigh of relief. It was time to move on, but he carried the accumulated experience of match reporting with him and attempted to convey it truthfully in the unfortunates. Now, as I said, The Unfortunates is a kind of, you know, it's a, it's a rather strange book. It's a very unconventional kind of um, form. But I think it's important not to let us be too distracted by the form here, um, from what, uh, distracted from what it actually has to say. Essentially, as one perceptive critic observed at the time of its publication, it's a plain, unvarnished tale with the traditional aim of showing us the way it was. And it's this quality which underpins its value to historians of sport. 
They've come to rely very heavily, it seems, historians of sport, on the press as a primary source. Um, and it's hardly a new observation to say so. It seems likely, moreover, that the ever-increasing availability of newspapers in digitised form will strengthen that tendency. The sports pages, however, merit attention not simply as sources to be plundered for information, but as complex sites requiring exploration and, I can't even say, exploration and explanation. Doug Booth suggested in 2005 that it's probably fair to conclude that few sports historians pay much attention to interrogating newspaper sources. Despite some advances in recent years, this criticism, I think, remains valid. In particular, it's important to understand that news was made and sources, sources are generated not just on the field of play, but in the press box, on the sub-editor's bench, and in the places where decisions were made regarding content, content form, and presentation. The match reporter was an integral part of the news supply chain, and Johnson's interior monologue in The Unfortunates is an, is an account of his experience at the City Ground Nottingham. It should be valued for its authenticity. Arthur Hopcross, football man, much praised, of course, uh, first published in 68, uh, devotes individual chapters to the player, the manager, the director, the referee, the fan. But the journalist or the reporter are unrepresented, strangely. Their story is subsumed in a general account of football's relationship with the press. Johnson's The Unfortunates, first published um, a year later, compensates magnificently and repays close reading. It addresses the question, how did it feel? And draws the reporter's personal experience for an answer. Well, thank you, Bill. Um, um, we do have time for questions. So if you want to, um, so if you want to uh, ask a question still, please um, unmute yourself and uh, you're welcome to, uh, to address the room. Can you unmute me? I'm not bored. Uh, no, that, I think they can hear you. Oh, right. I hope okay. so. Because oh, otherwise yes, you've been then. talking I mean, for yes, an hour. <laughs> um, and to, to somebody who pointed out that it's not, it's, um, it's, um, not, I, Nottingham Forest, Nottingham Forest, not Nottingham Forest. Not Forest. Not Forest. Not Forest. Fine, yeah. I agree. Sorry, that was a slip. Um, while people are gathering their thoughts, Dill, one thing that occurred to me is you were talking about the different ways in which this match had been reported mm. or digested or produced by Johnson, but did you read any other? I did. Reports of the match, yeah, because that occurred to me. There's, there's yeah. more. Well, know. it is quite interesting. I mean, I, I you know, I've looked, I've looked at various reports of the match and the, um, perhaps, I, perhaps I'll speak about the ones who were in newspapers, perhaps had the, the kind of readership closest to the observers, in, um, because um, there's a very, there are very interesting differences between Johnson's report saying this report is an anonymous report, there's no byline in the Sunday Times. Um, and it, it's quite close to Johnson's. It's, uh, and there's, but there's a very interesting one in the Sunday Telegraph by John Thickness, which is actually sort of a much tighter piece of writing somehow. Um, somehow get, you know, get, I mean, Johnson's report is going to be efficient, it's not a particularly exciting read. Um, and he's not, you know, yes, as he said in that, maybe in that uh, extract that I used earlier on, you know, he wasn't all that interested in making a match that they, he said they were encouraged to make even dull matches sound better than they were, but he wasn't really prepared to do that. He tried to make the story one of, in a sense, you know, it was a fairly mundane kind of occasion, really. It was Tottenham's first away win of the season, but it, in his report, it, it does, it sounds, it, it doesn't sound like a pretty, a particularly sort of um, exciting experience. I think John John Thickness's report is much more, you know, the match sounds much more eventful somehow. And uh, this description is a little bit tighter. I mean, Johnson sometimes, you know, he's not so much here, but in other reports, he's kind of, he sort of sometimes strives for a kind of literary effect and it doesn't come off. You know, he's, he's looking to avoid a cliche or to come up with a, an orig original way of saying something. And so I can remember a match again. There was one match he's describing a, a Wolves playing Stoke or something. He says the defences were like, um, this is sort of New Year or Boxing Day, um, were like an unpricked chestnut. <laughs> First, yeah. That is, and he's still sort of thinking, well, what does that convey to anybody? You know, so I mean, he can, you know, he can. I'm sure he can fail, but he's trying. He's trying very much to avoid the 
avoid cliche, I think. Uh, and sometimes probably that drives him in certain directions that he, he doesn't want to go. But I think, I think yeah, my, my impression is that, you know, from that match, you know, some, some people can make it sound a bit more interesting than he did. And I think, you know, whether that is a, you know, who knows? What is the, who knows in the end? Then was that an interesting match to be at? Wasn't it? You know, um, we, you know, you can read a, a lot, a lot of different accounts that are slightly different in that sense. Um, I haven't looked yet at any of the kind of local news. You know, the Nottingham, I can't know what the local paper was in the evening, the football special, as it were, uh, to see how I would expect the reporting there to be rather different. I'd expect the reporting of the match to be rather different in some of the popular Sundays, for example, like News of the World. But you can't always get those editions. Um, so it's, it's a bit difficult to know what you're comparing with, like with you're actually comparing, like with Mike. We'll stop. With Mike. Okay. Um, has anyone else got any questions? Um, you're welcome to unmute yourselves and uh, put something still. Ah, here's Neil. Yeah, many thanks for that, Dill. That was um, really. Um... Interesting. I'm not sure if I've heard it before. I think I've heard it before, but I, don't remember. <laughs> I can't remember. I haven't heard that version of it before. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, no, I really, I mean, the, the, the thing that, um, you know, I, I suppose the, the, the main point was, that, you know, how he was, um, he, his search for authenticity was, was a kind of, um, I think perhaps, perhaps um, the kind of the, the key point that, 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 that got my attention. Um, mm -hmm. Um, but I was just wondering, I suppose, a bit more about the, the context about um, Johnson as a as a reporter, and um, to what extent was he taken on by the Observer because it was a, a, a different um, different era in 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 football press reports, sports reporting more generally because of the just challenges from TV and and, and radio, uh, or was it the challenge from the I mean, the newspaper market w w was was changing. I just wonder whether he was perhaps taken on for that. Yeah, well, I think I, I think there there was this the idea that he would be an. I mean, the, the, the um, sports editor of um, the Observer, Clifford Makins, was inclined to to, ga to gamble. Uh, by all accounts, um, he had a kind of interesting team, anyway. But I mean, they they're quite in a sense. If you look at those Sunday papers, particularly, I mean, if you look at the Observer in 1950 something, early 50s, it's hardly any football reporting. Maybe one or two matches on a Sunday, but you know, you it would be it would be a, a kind of football coverage would be as inclined to cover Corinthian casuals versus I don't know um, Stowe Avenue as it would be inclined to cover um, you know Manchester United versus Tottenham. So you know, it was a bit. It, it was kind of it was a kind of um, well, I think that phrase Mandarin indulgence is a good one, I think. You know, they didn't quite know, they weren't comfortable with football. It wasn't the kind of middle-class sport, I suppose, is what I'm saying, or considered to be at that time. They didn't quite know how to do it. So they're, they're, they're taking people on. I mean, this is in the, in the 60s where um, I suppose there's a kind of upward mobility sort of driven by affluence. And so people are buying the observer who wouldn't have bought it before. And then, you know, they want, then perhaps more... In, they have more readers who are inclined to want football and expect football coverage. At the same time, you know, they're competing in this market for these new readers with, you know, with the Sunday Times in particular. And um, I think, you know, you definitely get the, if you read a book like, you know, something like Roy Greenslade's book about the sort of history of Fleet Street, and the you know, you get a sense they're going head to head at this point. And so, you know, Johnson was a reasonable bet in a way, wasn't he? Because, you know, he, he seemed disciplined enough. He was keen on the idea of, of uh, showing he could do this and do it effectively. And he also, at the time, seemed like somebody with something quite interesting to say. Um, and he was keen on football, you know, and he was, you know, clearly kind of committed to, um, to writing something that was different. They could expect to be a little bit different. So, yeah, that's my feeling about that also what where that authenticity kind of springs from okay. Good. Uh, so we have a comment from simon inglis who um was was the boris johnson of the 80s by the looks of it <laughs> uh, does anyone else have any questions uh for dill 
Simon, how would you? Oh, that's using... Mark, I think. Okay. Hi. Um, it was very interesting. Uh, thank you very much. I was wondering, you were just talking about him trying to find his voice for the Observer. Mm. I studied with with Neil last year, and I, I looked a lot at uh, newspaper articles from the fifties. Yeah, Times, the Observer, and the Daily Express. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you think he was influenced a lot by the Daily Express because having read in the fifties, mid late fifties, I was covering a lot about Real Madrid and Barcelona. Mm. The Observer were very poor at kind of giving you the feeling of being at the match. And the Daily Express, unfortunately, in many aspects, were very good at it. Yeah. Do you think he, he learned from them or he was um, influenced by them? Well, in the sense that, I mean, as far as I understand, Express football journalism, the sort of um, Desmond Hackett school, as it were, of the 1950s and 60s, I mean, they were very much, much led, weren't they, by that notion that the reporter was at the centre of the story. I mean, if you read Desmond Hackett, you know, it's usually, well, he's always on about, I'll eat my, if, you know, if England don't win tonight, I'll eat my brown bowler and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and uh, and if you, I mean, the classic report that is the one, isn't it, of the um, battle of, you know, when Brazil play Hungary, don't they, in 54 World Cup final, and it's referee Bartha Ellis, I think, from Halifax, and um, Hackett complains. That, yeah, Hackett puts himself at the centre of the story. Um, isn't he supposed to have said to somebody, I'll get a new suit out of this or something? And he leaps over the wall and 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 um, deliberately kind of rips his jacket or something. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's all that. I was shocked by this, you know, or, you know, I'm, I'm the centre. But, I mean, there was something there about, about getting the reporter's reaction. I mean, that's that would be the kind of stylized, heavily stylized version of it. But I can see I can see a sort of relationship between that and and what you're saying. I mean, I was reading this, some stuff by Ian Waldridge the other night, and he was saying when he went to ask for advice, he went to the, he tried to go into the mirror at one time when he was um, trying to make his way as a journalist, and and they said, "Or oh, read Peter Wilson, you know, in the, in the mirror. That's what, that's who you want to model yourself on." I mean, and Wilson's reporting was like that, wasn't it? You know, I always think of him as I, I had a friend at school who used to kind of parody him and write these things because he used to report a lot of boxing and he used to say, you know, there was blood on my typewriter, you know, and this, this kind of thing. So I'm not saying Johnson's trying to do that, but I think you're right in a, in a sense. There was that sense of let's have a reporter that can say something interesting. Um, and let's have, a, you know, let, let's, let's have a reporter that can, uh, more of a personal reflection, if you like, on the match. That was kind of creeping in, I think. Interesting, yeah. I, I didn't go as I kind of finished in 1960, so I didn't get to the the period where the Observer and the Times were starting to be a bit more yeah. descriptive. They were they were very formal and well, they go they go football a lot more space for one thing. There was just more words, you know. Um, I think that that was one of the things that happened, and of course, sort of post 66, you know, then I think things began to change more rapidly. It's very interesting. Johnson writes, Johnson's left the Observer. He carries on writing about football to some extent. He gets a job as the Times of India correspondent for the World Cup of 1966. And he just files this endless kind of copy of um, uh, for them. I mean, they're all there. But it's very interesting in about how he learns his trade because um, the report of the World Cup final, which he sends out to India, he's obviously learned a bit over his period, the, the pre preceding years, because he writes three different introductions before the match. One's England winning, one's Germany winning, and one's a draw. And he said, you know, and this is going to be the opening paragraph, use this, you know? So he's obviously, he's learning something. If not, if, if nothing else, the art of survival as a journalist. Thank you. It was really interesting talk. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you for your comments. Um, were you going to ask Simon something there? Well, I was only just interested, Simon, as a journalist, if, if you know, you, you'd any spe specific thing to say about this and how maybe it related to your own experiences. Hello. Yes. Good evening. Um, well, it's, it, it is a difficult one because I think clearly the scene in the in mid 60s was very different to how it was when I was uh, working um, already. Football journalism has come, had come on a great deal by then. Um, but it's true to say that even when I was doing, there was a huge divide between us who worked on, on the broadsheets and those who worked in the tabloids. Yeah. Um, almost a complete split, really. Um, 
And there was no question that uh, the Sunday boys that um, regarded themselves as slightly different from the dailies. Yeah. Uh, and also a large extent, um, there were the sort of the part timers amongst whom I would in include myself and those who were on, on the beat seven days a week, knew the managers. Yeah. Um, were intimate with, with some of the players, you know, were able to um, get extra quotes from, from their contacts and so on. And so somebody like, like Johnson um, would have been quite separate in many ways from, from the sort of the heart of the matter. Um, you just could not on the money that, that you were being paid. I, I don't know what the fees were in, in the 1960s, but by the early 80s, I was earning £42 a match yeah. from The Guardian. And that basically took the whole weekend. Yeah. So you would be going to the match traveling to the match in the morning get home late at night if you were doing the observer you would have finished your match report and therefore you had the rest of the weekend off if you're doing it for for, for the guardian one of the monday papers you were filing your report on a sunday morning mm. uh, and um those so therefore it was basically a weekend and a half for 42 quid yeah um, so you were not going to attract people who uh, were, were um, thrusting young entrepreneurial or ambitious people who were wanted yeah. to to make money out of it. Um, I'm not saying it was it was a it was hobbyist, but at the same time, um, it, it was a great way to go and watch football and have someone else pay for it. Yeah. And um, unfortunately, I missed the first ten minutes of your presentation, so I, I don't know enough about Johnson to know whether he he fitted into that camp. I suspect he did it for the money. Um, well, I think the money was quite important to him at the time because yeah. these other sources of income were beginning to dry up. But I think at the same time, there was this sort of genuine feeling that he might do something interesting. Um, it's inter it comes over very much in, in the, the key chapter that I, I mentioned there, his, his writing about, about writing about the match. And you know, at half-time, he describes going down to get a, a cup of tea or something, and he's, 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 he's alone. You know, he's not he's he's not mixing with anyone else. Yeah, um, he's not with the other the other reporters. Are he's not part of that in a sense. He also misses the interview with the manager, doesn't he? He does, I think. Yeah. Yes, he, yeah, he's he he does, I think. And he he gen well, it's, it's certainly a bit of news he picks up by chance about an injury, he says of me or something. And um, yeah, he's you definitely get that feeling he doesn't quite fit in any way, or nobody quite knows where to fit him into their group either. So I th I'm sure you're right about that. Um, I can't remember that, how much he was paid actually, but it, he notes it down very meticulously in his he, he, in his files. He's kept a note of his expenses claims and things. So, well, that, that was a really important thing because yeah, your expense claim, yeah. your expense claim was a way to make an extra fiver here and there. Yeah, um, that was the only way that you could really boost your income was 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 by being imaginative with the expenses yeah. and um <laughs> some newspapers were more generous than the other um the 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 more right wing they were the more generous shall we say yeah um, in, okay. in my experience certainly but i think i think what also you you, you highlighted very nicely or, or and certainly what johnson highlights in his work is that tension between the writer and the sub-editor and that that it, that was all-out war on occasions well, yeah. um yeah. i mean not not only are you having to, to be on a, a time deadline but you're also working in very difficult conditions if you imagine you're in a press box with say 20 other people phoning in their accounts between let's say sort of quarter to five and ten past five all the phones are going so you've got somebody on your right you've got somebody on your left you're yeah. trying to be coherent, you're trying to be original, and then you may be uh, getting to a point where you're describing a goal and you hear the guy from the mirror two doors down, two seats down, that you've got the name of the, 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 the guy who passed the ball or yeah, who, whatever yeah. wrong, and then you have to determine what you're going to do. Uh, you're also in a situation whereby wearing the press box, if you miss something and, and the conditions were very poor, you may have a, a column in front of you, you may be a, a, the view obscured, uh, whatever, and then you turn around to your fellow um, journalists and say, did anybody see that? Who, who, who was the final ball or whatever? And the chances are, if they don't like you or if you're from the Observer and they're from the Express or, or whatever, they won't tell you. Yeah. Um, 
there was there, there really was a divide within that. And also, um, you know, let, let's be honest about it. Um, it is a working class culture yeah. um, in football. And um, for me, certainly as a middle class boy uh, from university, uh, it, did, it did feel very alien. And sub editors would repeatedly say, well, you can't say that. You can't do that. No, you've got to change that or whatever. So you, you became used, you, you just become used to disappointment, really. <laughs> and it, it doesn't surprise me that that happened to Johnson. It, it, it's only in later years when you start to have more pages to fill yeah. uh, and where, the, where the, the idea of the football feature writer yes. becomes more commonplace that, that you're really a, a, a given space to, to, to express yourself fully. And don't forget also, a lot. this was done over very scratchy phones on typewriters. Yeah. You know, um, so it, it was it was also very difficult from just a purely operational point of view. And you would often read things the next day and they would be wrong because the, because the sub editor had misheard what you'd said. Yeah. And you had no control over that. Yeah. Yeah. OK, well, thanks very much. That's really. Pleasure. Yeah. I have to say, I, d I gave up reporting in 1986 because I like football too much and i just got fed up and very disillusioned with the whole circus well, to it's, be honest. well it's quite interesting isn't it because it's, it's quite a lot of people have been writing lately about that sort of football being a kind of weekly act of renewal sort of you know hope springs eternal etc etc every, every saturday um and you get a sense of that with johnson actually he's going to these matches and hoping that this is going to be you know the match it's going to where something really sensational is going to happen you know he's, he's so joyful about that Eastern goal that it's yeah he's actually seen something that he is really kind of made made his day in a sense and he can respond to it in a very kind of spontaneous fashion but you do get the sense he sees a lot of matches that don't lift his spirits in that way which we all know is a you know is a, the run of the mill match is run of the mill <laughs> and and um, and he that disappointment comes across as well I think very much in his writing which is a sense. Probably why it's why is why it seems so authentic at times. Yeah, thanks a lot. Anyway, well, that's great. Um, I think we'll wrap it up there with the kind of the voice of experience um, commenting on uh, on Johnson's work. Um, just quickly before we finish, uh, we have the last uh, seminar of this term will be in two weeks' time, and we'll feature John Hughes, um, who's previously spoken at this seminar, uh, talking about um, German. German, Anglo-German mountaineering films between the wars. And um, I heard that paper at conference last year and it was a fantastic paper. So I really encourage people to come back for an extended version of that paper. Um, and I believe that John is writing a book about these films at the moment. So that'll be in two weeks time. Uh, but for now, I'd like to say thank you again to Dil for giving an excellent paper, very, very interesting. And thank you all for coming along um, and taking the time to listen to Dill speak this evening. Okay, thanks Thank a lot. Thank you. Bye.